so I hate we always have to start with the so. I'll cut the so out. I'll no, I'll no, say no, the so the, and then I'll... everybody's cutting the so. Leave the so. I think I think you have to leave the so. That's your signature go-to whenever you. <laughs> I don't want to be associated with the so as my, because <laughs> what are we transitioning from? <laughs> Talking about something that has nothing to do with this. I think that's what makes it unique. People think there was a conversation happening before they walked in the door. They want to know more about what that. I I think. Oh, we leave it a big mystery. Okay. Yep, yep. All right. That's what this is. All right. So, Steve, we've been talking a lot recently about how much things have been changing online, especially in the last year. And I've been personally reflecting on my journey as an entrepreneur and as an online content creator and was laughing thinking about in 2015 it was in may of 2015 so it's it's this is timely um i was still running my stationary business and i had my elegance and enchantment blog this was before the michelle hickey design brand um existed and every year in new york city at jacob javits center they have the National Stationery Show, which is the big event for the stationery industry. And I really wanted to go. I wanted to go see um, the booths of the of the people who I had been following and admiring. And I wanted to like look at the paper samples up close. And it was I really had selfish intentions for for wanting to go to this event. But the tickets are really expensive. So I applied to get a press badge and all I had was my little elegance and enchantment blog but I said you know what's I'll just go for it we'll see what happens and they gave it to me (laughs) which I'm this this is you know in thinking about how much things have changed I don't know that just any any person with a, a URL that they would just hand this out to you today but in 2015, they did. They they yeah. gave me a, a press badge, and I got to bring people with me too. Um, Wood, Woodward, Bernstein, <laughs> Hickey, all the classics, <laughs> all the greats. <laughs> yeah, they so they they let me in. Um, and while I was there, I you know I had my my list of all the booths that I really wanted to go to, and I know like for you, probably like when thinking about. Um, stars in the stationary industry you're probably like what does that even mean i might be hard pressed to name one although keep going yeah well i was just going to give you a couple examples of ones that you might know maybe rifle paper company you might not know the name but i think that you would recognize the look of the brand um kate spade you've heard of kate spade before okay so that was one of the booths that were there Um, so those two were on my list. And then another one that was on my list was the artist, illustrator, and designer, Emily McDowell. Emily has grown tremendously since 2015, but at the time she was really like one of my, my idols. I had, I have been following her since, you know, I came on the stationary scene with my small brand. And I remember, you know, seeking her booth out and going, and she was actually there and I got to meet her and I got to talk to her. And 
I'll never forget this. I was so nervous, you know, even like approaching her, but, but I did it. Cause you know, cause I, I looked very official. I'm sure with my press badge, I'm like, right. I'm, I'm a member of the press. I need to ask Your you a few questions. With the press sticker on the side of the hat. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. But I, I was not expecting her to respond in the way that she did, which was, she spoke to me like I was her friend who happened to, you know, tap her on the shoulder and say, are you doing okay? Because she seemed a little distracted and she said, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm a little, I'm a little stressed. I'm going on the Today Show tomorrow. No big deal. Right. But I loved how she just confided in me like, a human being. And that is the basis of what Emily's brand is. It is it is being a human. It's telling it like it is. It's it's telling the truth and making it beautiful and making it making other people feel like they're not alone in their struggles. And she also injects everything with humor, which I absolutely love. So let's fast forward to today. Well, not exactly today, a couple months ago, when I had another one of those moments where I felt like I wasn't really qualified to be doing what I was doing, but I knew that Emily had a, a podcast come out at the beginning of this year or the end of last year called Quitted. I had been listening to it and I had been following her all these years, even though, you know, things have changed a lot for her during that time. And I think I said to you, I'm, I'm going to reach out to this person. I'm really nervous. But, you know, as always, you're like, just go for it. What's, you know, what's the worst that could happen? And I reached out and Emily said, yes. So another lesson to even if you feel like you're not qualified or you're not worthy, just go for it. Because the worst that could happen is that they say no. But all of this to say, I'm so excited that we are going to get the chance to now talk to Emily together and get caught up on her story. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Emily. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Steve. And this is a podcast for creatives. Two friends talking about the complex, messy, and beautiful experience that is being a creative. Welcome, Emily. We love hearing people's backstories here on a podcast for creatives. We love bringing in guests that have all kinds of different creative backgrounds and it's interesting to us to hear kind of when it all started. So when you were little, what did you want to be when you grew, when you grew up? Did, were art and design part of the equation? So it's funny because my mom is an artist. She's now retired, but she was an artist. And she um, supported two kids as a quilt maker, as an art quilt maker um, in the 80s and 90s, which was like very hard to do. And so I watched her struggle. So she was both, you know, living her passion, but also we had no money until I was like in late high school. And so as a kid, I really associated being an artist with like this life of struggle and difficulty. And so I loved art. I loved making stuff. You know, I loved writing. Those things were really in, in imprinted in me from, they're just like part of who I am. And, um, but I thought as a kid, like, I'm not going to do that for a job. I'm going to be like a lawyer, you know, <laughs> like I'm going to, and, and um, you know, it took me, I wasn't until it, it, it wasn't until I was really, you know, in my twenties that I really understood sort of this 
the gravity and the the of the the importance of what my mom had done which was also show us that like you could be an artist you know that you could do this that you could figure out not only how to be a working artist but also in a medium that wasn't even seen back then and kind of still isn't to a degree as like a um as a legitimate fine art medium and she managed to do that and so there was this i I had this massive respect for it and i was also like oh that's not going to be my thing because that's her thing you know and i had a my younger sister went to art school and it was always like i I, so i always felt like well that's they're going to be their thing and it's not going to be my thing what did you go to school for if you went to traditional so i went to i went to a four-year um liberal arts college i went to McAllister college in st paul minnesota which is small and um my i majored in creative writing um and i minored in studio art which i (laughs) had been up until my junior year a german minor which really (laughs) makes no sense at all i mean it was like one of those things like well i took it all through high school so i'm gonna just keep taking it and then i realized like the beginning of my junior year like what am i doing like i don't even like this you know and i hadn't taken an art class in college which was also real weird and so I completely redid my schedule and I took an art class that semester and I was like, oh my God, I love this. What am I doing? And so I, all of my electives, you know, I, I, I basically just did art and writing for my final two years of school um, and, and built a, an art minor that way starting my junior year. Um, and so it was, a, and so, yes, it was a crash course and it was like a return to like a wake up, like, duh. What this is this is who you are. You're not a German. What are you going to use German for? Yeah. So anyway, what a great example. And I I love that message that I think that so many of us can relate to that when you are creative and I truly believe that all people are creative, but when you're really creative, you can't hide from it. Like it sounded like you were trying your best to like not make it a big thing, but Mm -hmm. you can't help it. You can't help right. when you love something. So right, that's great. Do you remember the the first piece of art that you that you shared online? Yeah, I do actually remember it really well. It was um, it was a piece of it was lettering. It was an illustration of um, an Oscar Wilde quote that said, "Be yourself. Everyone else is taken." And this was in 2011. So lettering was not. It was pretty early in the trend of lettering. Um, it was not everywhere. It was not a thing everybody was doing. And I didn't have an audience. I wasn't, I was, I was just me. I mean, I had a Facebook page that had like 200 fans on it, all of whom I had like gone to high school with, you know? And so it was, I was not, you got to start somewhere though. I mean, totally right. <laughs> you got to have that um, group around you. And, um, and I, and Pinterest was also just getting started back then. And so it was the t- at the at the time it was like, like you could pin something publicly and then people would just repost it because it would be on it would like hang out on the on Pinterest's like homepage for a second you know and um and so that piece I posted it and it and it went fairly viral I mean not crazy viral but like enough that I was like oh this is um this is interesting. Like, this is something that people like. And I was kind of surprised, you know, I liked it, but I was also, you know, didn't know how, how the world would respond to it. And, um, 
I had an Etsy shop at the time that I had just opened where I was selling prints, that being one of them. Um, and, but yeah, that was the first piece that I shared that I was like, Oh, this is, this could be something like this could turn into something. What were you doing like right before that, before you were, were you, you said you had an Etsy shop, but were you also selling your art like no. in, in person so, at all? Not at all. So I had a, I had a really unconventional path to this. I, um, I had cancer when I was 24 and 25 and I came out of that experience, um, feeling like a, more than anything else, I needed health insurance. Um, and so I decided to go to portfolio school for advertising and to work in advertising because advertising felt like, well, this is a way that I can be creative. I like psychology. I can be an art director and it's a, it's a career with a capital C that will give me access to corporate insurance. And so it was like this, it was a combination of this is something that I feel like is a good match for like my skills and interests, but also like I didn't feel that the path of being an artist was available to me. Um, this was in the year 2000, so it was pre-Obamacare, so any policy that I could get was excluded my pre-existing condition, and so it was really like, a, a like, well, this is you know the the sort of practical nature of of being a person in America is like kind of needing this, and so I ultimately worked in advertising for about nine years. Um, and I quit my full time, my last full time job in early 2011. So I, you know, I worked my way up. I was eventually a creative director. Um, and also starting at about year three, I was pretty miserable. Like I liked the job in theory, but the, in practice it was, it just was, it was really tough. It was you, I worked all the time you know, stuff never gets made. I mean, like the thing about this, it's, it's like just a sort of pure frustration, you know, as a creative working in advertising, cause like 99% of what you do never sees the light of day, which actually in retrospect taught me so much about not being precious about my work and to just be, and to just work for the, you know, for, like the process, right. And to not, and to just be prolific and to not be too attached to any one idea and to just keep making, which I think is such an important lesson for anybody doing anything creative. Um, and so that career taught me so much. It taught me how to present work. It taught me how to think strategically. It taught me how to work really hard. It, you know, it, um, taught me how to work with different people. It was, it was a huge learning experience. And I also reached a point with it where I was like, I cannot imagine doing this for the rest of my life, let alone like, you know, next week. Like I, I just can't, I can't like I, this is not right for me. And I, you know, I think I, I stayed in it for as long as I did because I felt like, but I've put so much time in, you know, I've invested so much in this career and it's that, you know, it's that sunk cost fallacy of like, I have, but I've put all this effort in already and like, what if it could get better? Like, you know, and, and so I, I moved agencies a bunch and it was always like, well, if I'm working on a different client or if I'm working in a different agency or if I have a different creative director or if I have a different partner, you know, there were all these things that for years I was thinking like, then I'll, you know, then I'll like it better. Like if only I could work a little less, if only I could. And it was really just like, 
ultimately like, no, this is not what you're supposed to be doing. You know, the thing that all of these experiences had in common was me. And ultimately I realized that. And so I quit my last full-time job in early 2011, not knowing at all what I was going to do. Um, I was fortunate in that I could freelance in that business, um, and which some people do, you know, forever. Um, and, and so that was, I felt like, well, this is what I'll do to make money while I figure out what the next thing is that I'm going to do. Um, but I truly had no idea. And so I started an Etsy shop. I started, I just kind of went back to, I read an article that was like, you know, what to do when you don't know what to do with your life. But it was like one of those, you know, and it was, and one of the advice, one of the pieces of advice was, what did you love to do as a kid? You know, go back to think about what you love to do as a kid. And for me, in my free time as a kid, the things that I love to do were writing an illustration. I would just write stories and I would illustrate stuff and I would just sit around and draw. And so I started a little blog that I was doing where I was doing comics and I was doing just little, you know, sort of like, I I guess you would say comics and just little sort of like funny observations. I mean, the thing is I, I love and continue to be fascinated by the human condition and, and why we do what we do and just people. And so it was a lot of that kind of stuff, which, you know, really laddered into the rest of my work ultimately. Um, but I, then started an, and at the same time I started a Etsy shop and I was like, well, no one's going to buy comics. And so, you know, what can I, what can I make that I could sell? And so I started, you know, I bought an Epson printer and I just started illustrating prints and I was like, well, people like quotes and I like practicing lettering. So, and I always did lettering even as a kid, you know, that was like what I would doodle during class and stuff like that. And so, um, I, I started lettering, doing prints, quotes, that kind of stuff, not my own writing, um, at that time, it was all like public domain quotes, Oscar Wilde, stuff like that. And that was the stuff that I started to put on Pinterest. And then that started to get traction. And so I was like, oh, okay. You know, and so like 2011, 2012, I was freelancing in advertising and still, and, and then I had this little Etsy shop on the side. Thanks for sharing all that, Emily. Um, especially the freelancing part of your story, because um, I still freelance in my work. It's not something that I talk about a lot publicly. And I think that in, you know, the success stories that we hear, Mm -hmm. a lot of people who are especially like in the entrepreneurial field want to talk about, you know, how they made six figures all all online went and, you know, when I look at my income sources, like the pie of my income sources, my freelance money has always been kind of like keeping me afloat and, and allowing me to do my creative work. And it doesn't mean, you know, there have been periods of, of my career in which, you know, income sources have, have been greater in other areas of, of my online business. But I just want to encourage um, any artist or creative who's listening to this, that it's okay to freelance or it's okay to, you know, to be a barista or be a yoga teacher or whatever to pay the bills so that you can do your creative work. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been able to do, to make this transition without freelance. And, and it was the, 
money that I made from freelance that eventually allowed me to take two months and focus on making a card collection. You know, I had to make 40 cards in order to launch the card collection um, in in early 2013 wholesale. And it was, you know, it was the savings that I had from freelance that allowed me to do that. And it was also, you know, just the knowing that like, if this fails, I can go back to freelance. Like it was, there, there was like a very, you know, I assumed that what would happen I knew that I was making something that resonated with people, but I, but I assumed that I would have a stationary business on the side for a while. You know, I assumed that I would go to my first stationary show and get orders from, you know, 15 stores or whatever and, and have, and just run a little stationary business out of my apartment that eventually would grow and replace my freelance income. Um, and that was really how I was looking at it when I went into it, you know, and like, and like even now, you know, on the other side, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I have recently, um, stepped away from my company. And so I'm in a space of like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And while I figure that out, I have consulting income, you know, like I'm not even, even at this stage now in my life, I'm not even feeling prepared to go from one creative thing to another creative thing without, you know, some, without some outs, without some outside, um, source of income that is unrelated, you know, or related, but not, not the thing, if that makes sense. Such a powerful message. I hope if anyone takes anything from this, um, episode, it's, it's that, that it's, it's okay to have sources that are, you know, not, you know, outside of your Etsy shop, outside of your, what, may be the most important thing in your heart, but may not be the thing that is able to pay the bills just yet. Mm -hmm. The other thing I will say about that too, is that I think one of the things that I've really learned and taken to heart is that it's important to really be careful when you're monetizing your joy. And sometimes artists, you know, the thing that I think the thing that is the biggest struggle or one of the biggest struggles for artists who begin to make a living from their art is how do you keep enjoying this thing when it turns into a capitalist enterprise, when it turns into the way that you, the sole way that you make your money. So, and you, and you have the pressure of what people want from you, which is sometimes different than what you want to make. And you have, you know, it, 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 you have all of the aspects of running an art business that are not art. You know, at the at the height of M and Friends, I was when I was still CEO of the company back in 2015, 2016. I was um, I don't want to say at the height of it, but when I was when I at the of me being, height of me being CEO, I was only spending about 15% of my time actually writing and making art, and the rest of it was all business. And it's hard you know <laughs> it's really hard and I think for you know one of the things that can be really beautiful about having a creative practice that brings in part of your income is that you can actually honor that creativity and do things that you want to do and and put some boundaries around it that are important for you and your mental health and really focus on what you want 
because you're having you have an income source from somewhere else. And so you have another you have a day job or you have a you know part-time job or you have freelance or whatever it is that that covers some of the bills. And so that gives you kind of a cushion to be able to pick and choose a little bit more with your art rather than kind of letting your art take over and and drive your whole life um which you know can can suck the joy out of what you're doing it it feels like the era that we're in right now with um you know in still in 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 the throes of the pandemic but with this great resignation and people starting to kind of peel away and reprioritize and maybe choose joy or choose things that that spark creativity in them um you know that there's there's this pull towards um you know maybe away from what was what was established in people um what they grew up with what they knew um versus this sort of now anything is possible i need to if anything i've learned over the last 2 years it's to it's to seek this joy and to find something that is more in line with what my my passion is or where my priorities are um is that something that you 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 feel um because it very much feels like we're almost in this period of like a, a creative awakening where I think a lot of people are starting to tap into that that creative in them because there are so many outlets where they can sort of share, you know, their message. Yeah, I absolutely feel that way. Um, and I'm, I'm loving seeing it. And at the same time, I think it's important to for people to understand that, like, it's a fallacy to think oh, I'm going to go be creative for a living and it's going to just be, um, I'm going to, it's going to solve all the problems that I had with my other job. You know, um, I think that it is, I am all for, like, I don't think I could work for someone else again. So I'll say that, right? Like I, I plan to work for myself in some capacity for the rest of my life. So like, you know, th- that's a, I think that's a pretty clear indication that I really, that of, of how it's gone for me, right? Like I really believe in, in working for myself. And at the same time, um, I think that it's important to, there's also a, there's a big focus on because we're in this messed up late capitalist place culturally, like there's such a focus on making money and cause there has to be, you know, it's practical. Like, yes, we have to do this in order to survive, but so much of the messaging around working for yourself is like work for yourself and be, make seven figures and be like a, be a boss and be like this and a that. And like, that is what I think gets glossed over in that is that like burnout is just as possible if not more so for working for yourself as it is working for someone else. And so I think that it's, I think that it's important to just understand that this isn't a, like an easy solution. Like it's a, like, it's definitely, yes, I agree. Follow your passion, do your thing, do what lights you up. Don't stay in a job you hate all of that and kind of be realistic about what a job can and can't do for you, if that makes sense. Yes. I think the, the courage to, 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 to walk away as well, because like, you know, when you're, when you're working for someone else, that 
frustration and anger or whatever bubbles up to the top when you're not happy can be directed at or towards someone else. But when it's you, yes. you really have only yourself to sort of look at, which, I mean, that doesn't really help the situation either because it just feels like you're boxed in. Right. And the pressure, I mean, it, the pressure is really real. I, you know, like there were definitely, there have been times where, and I, you know, I joke with this about, I joke with my other, like I have a, a lot of friends who, who own companies or who are in the sort of art entrepreneur space. And like, like we can't quit. Like you can't quit when you're the boss, you know, you can't quit when there are, uh, 15 people reporting to you whose incomes depend upon your work and depend upon you showing up and, and doing your job every day. And so that, and the pressure of maintaining, you know, of growing, of maintaining the thing that you've built, um, is really real. And the, you know, the thing about working for someone else is you can always leave, like if it's not working and it's much harder to do that once you've built something for yourself because it costs money to shut something down and you have this liability and you also have like potentially other people's lives. If you have people working for you, you know, whose income you are creating. And so like it gets really complicated. Um, like, yes, it's a, yes, it's freedom. And it's also, um, not, I think not the kind of freedom that a lot of people think it is if that makes sense. You already started to answer my next question. So let's <laughs> fast forward a little bit. When I met you in 2015, it was the day before you were going on the Today Show. And in my mind, I thought this woman has it all. I mean, I, I was already following your journey and you were such a, a wonderful you know, source of inspiration to me. And I thought, oh, this is, this is what I want. I, I want a booth at National Stationery Show and I want to be interviewed on the Today Show. And then, you know, maybe that was one of your peaks on paper. Um, and you did go on to do other things that, that I admire and I'm sure a lot of other people admire after that. Um, and you can feel free to speak about some of what you consider to be on paper, like what those peaks were. But you've been so honest about you know, the shortcomings of what looks like success. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about in that period of, you know, in from a capitalist perspective of being really like at the peak of that mountain, um, what you were really feeling on the inside. Yeah, I mean, on the inside, I was feeling like I was running as fast as I could with like a tsunami at my back, you know, that was unrelenting. Um, I was simultaneously so grateful for all of the attention and all of the press. I mean, this was so just for some context for this, we, my company grew really quickly. I, I launched it in early 2013 and we, uh, you know, I was thinking it would just be me for a minute. And then immediately I had to hire an employee within two weeks and it just kind of grew from there. And by 2015, um, we had already moved out of two different studio spaces in downtown Los Angeles and we had a hundred plus sales reps and we had a team of, gosh, I don't remember seven people maybe. And, um, and then I introduced empathy cards, which were our answer to traditional sympathy cards. And that was what really the, the, the revenue for our business doubled overnight. 
And that sounds amazing. And in some ways it is, but logistically it was horrific. Um, because you don't have, you know, when you get tens of thousands of orders on your website in a day, like who's going to fill those orders and who's going to pack those orders and who's going to ship them. And this happened, all of this press and this launch happened in tandem with me and most of our staff trying to go to the stationary show, which was our one, our big national annual trade show in New York every year. That's its own job in and of itself and build a booth and do all that. And so I had something like 25 temps from, I had, I, I hired all the temps from, <laughs> from three Apple one temp agencies in Los Angeles, um, who were packing orders at our studio and our studio manager was trying to, you know, make manuals on the fly to train them and to make people not screw it up and, you know, it, and to, and the amount of customer service that is required to do that volume of online stuff is like pretty massive, you know, and we had like one customer service person. And so like, and it was all immediate and it was also a topic that people were really emotionally attached to, which means that people needed extra handholding, extra customer service. You know, we were getting, we got in a week, like something like 6,000 emails of people sharing their personal stories, emailing me directly, like trying to try. So trying to manage all that and trying to manage just this snowball effect, um, was incredibly difficult and so you know one of the things I think that's that people think is like when your revenue doubles like your profit doubles and that's not actually true because your overhead goes way up right and so like especially if it happens overnight and you can't put like systems into place that um that makes sense and you have to just do whatever it takes to get the stuff out the door it, you know yes profit went up but it's not commensurate with with um with revenue so like that's the thing that like when I talk about business like when I teach small business and I talk about that it's like there's this kind of a sweet spot I think for businesses where it feels sustainable it feels good you don't you have this sort of balance between revenue and overhead and the more you grow revenue like we have this you know cultural narrative of the role of a business is that it's supposed to grow in perpetuity and I just think that that's so backwards and just not true. And it's also not sustainable. It's not sustainable for the planet. It's not sustainable for us. It's not like, it's not healthy. And this model of growth, 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 your overhead continues to grow. And so yes, like growing revenue is great, but like it doesn't, it doesn't actually like at a certain point, you're just making more work for yourself and you're not even really making more money. Um, you're just making your life harder and more complicated. And so, you know, that's, a th that's, that's something. So anyway, I totally went off topic there, but I, I, in that time, 2015, 2016 was just running and running and running to try to catch up with the business that had just taken over my life. And I didn't have time to make new work. I like, it was all, you know, so much of my time was spent trying to manage logistics and trying to manage infrastructure and manage people. And so it was not, I was not able to, you know, the time that I had to sit down and actually 
think about creative and think about making new work was like, you know, 1 a.m. and I was exhausted and I was really unhealthy and I, you know, wasn't taking care of myself and it just, you know, I, I got really burned out in 2016. I had mono and strep throat at the same time and I was just like in bed for a month and it was it, it it just like my immune system wasn't working right you know I was just really it was not a life that was sustainable and at the same time I had on Instagram people every day being like I want your life oh my god you know and so that was such a weird period of cognitive dissonance because I just wanted to say to everyone like no you don't you don't actually want this like this looks amazing from the outside. I'm sure you read a story, you know, you see me on like NBC news came to my studio and did this whole segment, like all of this stuff. And people think like, Oh my God, it's amazing. And like, yes, in some ways it was really amazing. And in other ways, living through that was actually really the most challenging period of my life. So we started something new. I'm usually going to you with ideas. So I think I was so excited that I barely listened to what you said. And I was like, you know what? Sure, let's do it. Could have said anything right there at that point in time, couldn't I? Michelle and I grew up in the 90s, and we've noticed, I think, over the years that a lot of the uh, references that we end up dropping in our podcast end up coming from that period in our childhood. We were a TV generation, so we remember a lot of these offbeat commercials and a lot of these things that um, were a part of our childhood, and I thought it would be fun to kind of like look back at them we don't really watch commercials anymore in, in this day and age. You know, ads are usually something that we're doing anything that we could possibly do to skip over. Funny commercials or, or commercials with memorable jingles have stayed with us over the years. Uh, and this platform, this, this commercial breakdown show gave us the opportunity to bring some of them back and, you know, relive a few of these moments with, with all of you and, you know, reflect fondly on them. So if you get a chance, go into one of our pod for creative social profiles or go to our website and look for commercial breakdown which is the name of our show i time this it takes literally four seconds of your time subscribe to our youtube channel and hit that thumbs up button if you have a friend or a sibling or someone um, that you remember talking to about the commercials that that we're showcasing certainly anywhere where you can share it we would really appreciate it i have so many questions <laughs> because and and, I, and and forgive me because you know everyone everyone has a a connection to you had brought up before about um battling cancer and and something that that you know targets your immune system challenges you uh, puts you in a position to not be able to fight off other infections the work, what you were enduring in, in, in your career ultimately led to the same way. And, and, and I mean, that's a bold statement to say that mm -hmm. that, that might've been the toughest part of, of your life. Someone having gone through and survived cancer, the, the juxtaposition between the two of them, do you stop to think about that at all? Because in many ways, uh, you know, you, you ended up in a situation where many who do fight cancer and maybe yourself when you were in that, that, that period also find themselves. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the thing, the thing was about, about the business was like, I did this to myself and, um, 
I did it to myself in pursuit of a life that felt more sustainable than advertising, which was the great irony, right? Like one of the reasons that I quit working in advertising was because I didn't want to work all the time. And then I just basically created those same conditions for myself. I was like the world's worst boss to myself. And it's taken me, you know, over the last five years of my life have been really focused on undoing a lot of my programming about what the role of work should be in a life and how much of my own worth is derived from what I do and, you know, how much I'm like, what, like just the connection between, between work and, and living and, um, and really try and really practicing, um, undoing so much of that and also health you know, really focusing on phys physical and mental health, uh, emotional, spiritual, all of it, um, which was really, it all really took a back seat. I mean, you know, 20, 2013 through 2016, it, it was that four year period where the company was, was everything, you know, it, the company, I, do, I wasn't a good partner. I wasn't a good stepmom. I wasn't a good friend. I wasn't, I wasn't anything, you know, except a worker person. Um, I was good at building a company ish, you know, like until I wasn't right. Like <laughs> until I like sort of spectacularly wasn't, but, um, but yeah, it, 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 I definitely, you know, the irony, I mean, they say that like when you survive an illness or you have a near death experience or you go through something that changes your perspective that it's temporary. And I found that to be really true in, in my, that for most people you come out of an experience with this newfound, like, Oh, I need to reprioritize. I am going to change. I'm going to, you know, uh, like what I thought was important isn't important anymore. And that actually for most people within a couple years, you're back to your old habits. And I find that really interesting. Um, and obviously that's not everybody, but the research shows that that's most people. And that's really, you know, what happened for me. And also when I was sick, I was so young that I didn't really have a sense of mortality. I didn't really have a, like, if I were sick, if I were to get cancer now, my, my life my response to it would be completely different. And back then, you know, I was 24. I was only a couple years out of college. I was like, like the fact that I could have, that I, that, I, that I would have died without treatment and that I could have died even with it wasn't even, I just didn't think about it. Like all I thought about was like, oh, I just want to get through it. Like, I just want to get through this. And like, this sucks and this is lonely and this is hard. And I thought doctors were infallible and now I know that they're just guessing and you know, all of these, you know, relationships are hard and I feel terrible and you know, all of that, but there wasn't, there wasn't a big sort of life reckoning because I hadn't lived enough life yet to know what I should be reckoning with. So knowing all of that, to step away 
from the business. Was it a hard decision in the moment? It was and it wasn't. So my stepping away from the business came in two stages. And the first one was in 2017. Um, I sold 90% of the business to Knock Knock, which is our, uh, which is a, a, another brand in our space that um, does journals and pads and decks and were much bigger than us. And their, um, their founder and CEO had become a friend of mine, um, also Los Angeles business. And they had been in business for, uh, since 2004. So they were, so they were much more established. And so being acquired by knock knock gave me the opportunity to get business partners. So I came on board as an equity partner in the business, in the joint, in the joint company. And we had two brands that we ran under one roof with a shared staff from, from 2017 till now. And, um, end of 2017. And so that gave me the opportunity to let go of some of my seven jobs that I was doing and, and really focus more on the jobs that I wanted to be doing and that, that I was, that I was good at. And it also gave me the opportunity to like have a life again and, and to get, and to get some semblance of life back and to, and to heal. And our first couple, our first 18 months or so were really difficult post merger for many, many reasons that I won't even get into, but just unforeseen challenges to the business and business landscape and revenue and sort of a perfect storm of lots of, of stuff. Um, and so it actually got harder before it got easier, but starting in about mid 2019, um, it really, it's really given me an opportunity to step back and back and back. And one of the, the, the big goal for M and friends, which was called Emily McDowell Studio at the time of acquisition, and then we sw- we changed the name. In part, we we changed the name to separate it from me, its founder, and the work that I've been doing since since we joined with Knock Knock has been to essentially replace myself to to bring in a creative department um, of of writers and illustrators, and both in house and outside people, freelancers, to execute the brand under my creative direction. And so I started off writing and illustrating everything. And then, you know, by, by this last couple of years, I'm only, I I only, it's very, very few pieces in 2021 and none of the work in 2022 was written and illustrated by me. And, um, that's, that was our plan from the beginning. And so that's been, it's felt really good. It's interesting because in, in some ways there's some, some parts of me miss, miscreating but I've also been doing it in other outlets and at this point you know I've written a thousand products like I don't need to write more products I've done it I've done I've done in so much I've done everything I've said what I want to say on a greeting card and so it feels more rewarding to me to help other people, you know, and to be, and to be able to bring in other people and to be able to license work from other people and to, you know, get help, get their work out into the world feels more rewarding and interesting, um, than continuing to do that kind of work myself. Um, and then back in April, so just about, just really about six weeks ago, um, both brands were acquired by um, Union Square & Co., which is the publishing arm of Barnes & Noble. 
And what that means is we will continue to run independently. Our whole team stayed in place, um, continuing to do what we do. But I had the option of continuing on as a BNN employee or not. And I chose to not. Um, I am going to be consulting with them for the next year, helping with the transition um, part-time. But I really, you know, had to think about what do I want? What do I want from this next phase of my career? And for me, I want to do other work. Like I really, you know, I have loved what I've built and what we've built together as a team. I mean, it's been so many people, not just me, but like I have, I feel really proud of the 10 years of the, of, of what M and friends has become. And I also feel like really ready to see what else is out there for me. Um, like I realized that staying would be, but the reason that I would stay had everything to do with like safety and security and not because I felt passionate about the work or, you know, like that, that it was, that it was an easy, safe choice. And I really believe that we are here to learn stuff and I am happiest when I'm learning and growing. And I felt like it was sort of a universe nudge to say, okay, like this, this can stand on its own. Now this is going to become whatever it's going to become with, you know, under, under the direction of other people. And it's time for you to go figure out your next thing. That's really brave of you. <laughs> um, but terrifying, but yeah, it, yeah. But I don't think it was something like you woke up and said, okay, I can do this. I don't know what's coming next, but I can do this. I, from continuing to follow you online, I, I still remember when you put up a post from whatever, I don't know if the Instagram account still exists, but essentially you made the announcement that you were starting this new Instagram account, Emily on life, which, mm -hmm. which is what, current. which is what you yep, use now, which if yep. people want to follow you, they can find you there. And you, this post that's in my head, you just seemingly transformed. You're glowing in the, in, in the photo that you posted of yourself. Mm. And you were talking about how you really started to invest in your mental health, your physical health. And this was, this was a few, this was years ago. Was this, 2019. This, yeah, yeah, this, this wasn't yep. like yep. last month. Yeah, um, so I imagine that making that decision to prioritize your health um, helped you to make make those decisions a little bit easier mm -hmm. yeah, and definitely. to be okay with the unknown. Definitely. And, you know, with that was real fear of like, well, what will happen to the business if I if I step away? What will happen to our Instagram account? if I'm not doing the posts anymore, you know, will people still follow? And like, no, you know, like to be totally honest, you know, it also happened with it also, you know, Instagram's algorithm also totally changed and like tanked everybody's, you know, uh, engagement and all that, which we know, but like, no, I mean, to be completely honest in the year following me stepping away from our Instagram, um, our sales 
on our direct-to-consumer sales fell by 50%. And, um, you know, so there were some real, like, there were some real consequences to me prioritizing myself over the business. Um, and so I don't want to be, I, I, I want to, like, I want to kind of be clear about that because I think that, like, sometimes we sometimes that's that's not a clear part of a story but i i do want to be clear about that and at the same time i don't regret it like it was the right thing to do and it was the problem was that i had built a business that was unsustainable that took so much from me that i couldn't be a person at the same time and so i think that you know the way like our sales were if our sales came on the back of me, um, you know, sacrificing everything to, to make those sales, like that doesn't feel real to me. Like it feels like that's not, it's not sustainable. Like that's not a way to run a business. Um, and so I would say, you know, to anyone listening, like, you know, the trick is to not like learn from my mistakes. You know, the trick is to not do that is to, is to, build it's better to build something more slowly that you can keep doing you know that doesn't that doesn't um just require you to become a a machine um like a work machine and you know the irony was that I was like the empathy card lady you know and I was like the (laughs) mental health card person and so like it was just yes I mean there was some real some real irony happening there um but yeah I mean it was um it, it, it was it was the best choice that I could have made. Um, and I am really grateful to that former version of myself who who decided to take to take that risk, you know, and part of why I part of and to also to be to be to be totally frank, like part of why I was able to take that risk is because I no longer owned 100 percent of the company, you know, that I was a, a minority owner and we had this larger company that and I had business partners that were really supportive and said, you know, we need to, this company is not worth anything if it, if it's predicated on its founder also, you know, like realistically any company that is dependent upon its founder, if, if you get hit by a bus tomorrow and there's no brand, then it's not actually worth anything. So we need to get you out of this. And we know that like sales will probably take a hit and, you know, and like, but that we, we believe in the brand and in our ability to build it back up. Um, and to, and to, and to change our sales channels and to maybe it's less direct to consumer and more target, you know, and that we can, that we can adjust and we can adapt. And so you need to take care of yourself. Um, and so that was, you know, really important for me in, in being able to make that transition. You're in this unknown now, which is a little scary, but also so beautiful because there are so many possibilities, um, I think it's hard for any of us to answer, like, you know, what's, what's your next thing? What are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do when you grow up? Like the first question we asked, but <laughs> just in this moment, what, what's exciting you creatively? Um, <clears throat> I'm having fun doing my podcast. Um, it's called quitted and it's about quitting as the name suggests. Um, and it's about not just quitting jobs, but quitting all of the things that give us our identity. So it could be a job or relationships, ways of thinking, religion, 
the things that make up who we are, you know, and it's answering the question of like, what happens when you don't want to be who you are anymore? And how do you move forward from that? And how do you be in that space? You know, that, and sort of countering the narrative about quitting in our culture, which is, which is failure, that quitting is synonymous with failure and that we have this sort of cultural adherent, you know, this cultural worship of perseverance and grit and that, sometimes the bravest thing you can do is actually walk away. And so that's, you know, so I've, so I'm working on that. I have that, I have that, this podcast that is co-hosted with a friend called named Holly Whitaker, uh, author, wonderful human being. And we are doing that every week interviews with folk, just regular folks and some kind of expert folks and talking ourselves and just having fun and um beyond that <laughs> i really don't know i am really trying to give myself some space to feel into what feels interesting um i think you know i think that i will be i don't know you know teaching the things that feel more interesting to me are things like teaching and writing um as I said, I think that I, feel, you know, I feel pretty complete with products um, at this point with making products. Um, I, I may, you know, do some of that work at some point in the future if I, if I, if I feel called to. But right now, I feel pretty good about, uh, you know, kind of leaving it there. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm doing some mentoring through. I started a, a nonprofit. Um, foundation with my friend Lisa Congdon this past year um, that provides grants and professional mentoring to artists of color. And so I have a mentee through that. And so I've been doing that and, and, and really liking that. Um, and so maybe more mentorship is in my future. Um, yeah, just really feeling into it, figuring it out. Wonderful. Well, Emily, thank you so much for your time sharing your story. So openly and if anyone wants to continue to follow along with your journey they can listen to your podcast quitted which you can find anywhere you listen to podcasts um and we'll add links to your instagram which is emily on life your website is also emily on life thank you so much thank Great. you for for having this conversation and 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 for bringing me on I, it was fun for Thanks, us too Anna. thank you if you've enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word on social media. Tag us at Pod4Creatives and let us know which stood out to you. That music just pops and it scares the shit out of I was just thinking the same thing. Um, when I went to dial you, I thought, oh, good. I'm glad I get to be the one to dial because you always like jump when you hear it. But I still jumped, even though I was the one initiating it. I know it's coming <laughs> all the time and it still makes me jump terrifying uh, and it it's not it has like one vol one level of volume and it's like the highest Blaring. possible yeah, yeah. it doesn't Blaring. matter if you try to change it yeah no it's exactly it <laughs> i remember when i was a kid and i would go to the pediatrician i had a doctor who would like come into the room like kramer does on seinfeld where like it would be this like jarring door opening and he would walk in and as a kid being in the pediatricians like i'm terrified as it is right because you always think you're going to get a shot or something bad's going to happen so you're just waiting on this like anxiety riddled moment of this guy bursting through the door and that's how i feel now as an adult every time i come on to skype it's just bringing back these terrible memories